Well, God, I pray for a good experience. I pray that you'd be so alive and helpful and present. You know, we all come into a church having had a week and having had a weekend and having uh, anticipating Monday and uh, being in the middle of fun things and good connections and good friends and donuts and birthday parties and stresses and money worries and kids things we think about or whatever's on our mind. We are just a welter of stuff. And so right now I pray that you would come and quiet our spirits, that you would come and give us the ability to kind of be here now, to be present to this moment. And I pray if there's anything I'm saying that's helpful, that it would be helpful. And if this moment is not about what I'm saying, but is about being still and hearing your voice or connecting with someone over donuts afterwards or uh, whatever it is that you mean to happen here, I pray we wouldn't miss it. We'd get what you brought us here for. And uh, we look forward to what you have in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, in a spiritual vein, I want to tell you about a moment, uh, maybe a couple of months ago now, when I was in an ultra-violent movie with my oldest son. So it's kind of a spiritual thing. Super violent. Mind-numbingly violent. My son likes violent movies, and I'm the only one who will go with him. And so he'd asked me to go, and um, I found myself, as one does in in an ultra-violent movie, in sort of a zen state after a while. Because... Things were coming like the, you know, the impalings and the, you know, stranglings and the shootings and the people being thrown across rooms and downstairs. It's such a, you know, it was like at very regular intervals. And so I began to like get me into a numb state where it's almost like they were just washing over me. And what happened is I found myself getting more and more still is that I got more and more in touch with like some sort of inner despair. (laughs) There, There was something in my life I was really hoping for. And suddenly I just got still enough to feel like it's not gonna happen. It's hopeless. There's no possible way it can happen. I hadn't realized with such clarity that this thing was just ridiculous, was never going to happen, was over. And so I leave the movie, and my son, who's a processor, is like, what do you think of the movie? Wow, that moment when they got impaled against spikes was really great. <laughs> and I'm saying to my, to my son, why don't you go process it? There's a coffee shop over there. Go enjoy coffee. I'm going to walk and just despair for a while. And I'll get back. I'm thinking about deeper things than this. And um, so as I was trying to figure out what to do, I did something kind of that spiritually I've enjoyed sometimes over the years. I did a very, very pastory thing. I went to a coffee shop, and I took out my phone, and I opened my Bible app. And I started praying through the book of Psalms, which I sometimes do, thinking that maybe it'll cheer me up. And right away, I hit a psalm that did cheer me up in a very unexpected way, which I wanted to to, uh, let you in on. Psalm 32. It's all about sin and forgiveness, stuff that wouldn't have seemed relevant, but suddenly something is really relevant. So here's what it says. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So I was praying that as if it were my own prayer, just kind of pretending it was me praying King David's prayer. And, uh, and what I found is by the end of that psalm, I felt better. And I went back to try to like, tease out why. And I was saying, so why would this... I'm, I'm not, 
it's not like I feel so sinful that my, you know, my moral life is so horrible and that's the problem I'm dealing with. It's just that I feel like my life isn't going to work out. Why is this psalm so helpful? And I felt like God kind of pointed some things out to me. I felt like he said, well, I think the sin for you that you're asking forgiveness for is your secret despair. I think what happened in that movie was not that you got in touch with the deep truth that this project you hope for is hopeless. I think what you got in touch with is that you've had, that you haven't quite gotten to the core of, some real despair that all along that you've been tamping down, like not paying attention to and trying to box up and trying to move forward in spite of. And suddenly, because of this ultraviolet movie, you got so still that you realized it. And so what you just did in the psalm is you just confessed that to me. You gave that to me. You said, I guess I got some despair in me. Here, take it. And I took it. That you wondered when it was over if that was the truth about your situation. That what I would tell you is this thing's hopeless. That's not the truth about your situation. I think this thing has great hope. I think you're on a great track. I'm very hopeful about the things you're, you're giving yourself to. The truth of the situation is that you were hiding this thing in your heart that you didn't even know was there. You gave it to me and I took it. And you know what can happen when I do that? I can instruct you and teach you the way you should go in this situation. I can start speaking to you. I can counsel you with my loving eye on you. And that by the end of the psalm, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you heard. You can feel great. You can feel great hope because you are on a path where I'm the one taking all the stress and the burden of this thing. I'm the one you can lean on who says it's my job to tell you which way to go in this project that you don't know what to do because you're right. I'm the one who told you to do it. I'll take all the burden on me, Dave. You don't even have to worry about it. I'll tell you what to do. And suddenly I felt very encouraged. I found my son again over coffee, and then I could talk to him about, you know, stabbings and shootings and things like that. It was really great. Um, I don't know about you, um, but and maybe this disqualifies me of being a helpful speaker in a church setting. Every now and again, I wonder if I've made some horrible mistakes. You know? And I think that's what that did for me, is I got in touch with it. And this sort of thing is so helpful to me. This sort of engagement is helpful with me in saying, maybe my life doesn't all boil down to, your life, Dave, can go great, just so long as you never make any horrible mistakes. If you're perfect in all your choices, you're going to rock. But, you know, that's, that's the only thing you have to do is just don't make mistakes, and your life's going to be fantastic. Sadly, if you make mistakes, you know, people make mistakes, and their life, they just go down, down, down. What I realize in these moments is maybe I'm thinking about my life all wrong. Maybe my life is not all about, I have to make these you know, great decisions. Maybe my life is about, I have to be in touch with God in the kind of way that can take me on a sort of journey that I'm going to like, and that the pressure is off me and on God. So, I, um, so Brad asked me, like, he said, talk about like, what's most exciting to you about faith these days? And I thought, I think this is most exciting to me about faith these days. I think um, my answer to why is embedded in um, the small little story about going to the movies with my son. I think the biggest challenge of people trying to follow God, for instance, in the Old Testament, is a simple but profound challenge. Here's the way the psalmist summarizes in Psalm 146. Don't put your trust in princes, in human beings who can't save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. So in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel go to God demanding a king like other nations have. It feels too vulnerable to be led by this God that they can't see, this invisible leader. Other nations have these demagogue kings. So their surrounding nations have kings who whip up a fervor in their people and they say, we're going to destroy our enemies. We're going to be tough and strong. We're going to be top dog. Rally around us. Let's go kill those people. And Israel hears that from all sides. These demagogue kings who are just saying, we're going to take down our enemies. And Israel has no one like that. 
because they don't have a king. And after a while, they say, we want our own demagogue king to whip up us, us up into a fervor and let us know right, we're going to be the toughest kid on the block and we're not going to be pushed around by those guys. We want one of them. And God says to them, look, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in powerful people that you're going to stand behind and they're going to you know, take you and kill off all the enemies. That's what the pagans do. Trust in me, you know, the invisible God who's just walking on this little very spiritual journey, and I'll protect you. I'm the God of the universe, after all. I'm actually powerful. I'm not this demagogue you know, who's rallying all the troops. I'm actually powerful. Trust in me. But after a while, they can't pull it off. And, uh, and then a lot of the journey of the Old Testament is what's the consequence of wanting a king like the other nations. So stories like my violent movie story are at least close to something deep in the story of people who keep finding a vibrant faith. What does it mean to not trust in your own good decision-making? What does it mean not to trust that your plans are all marshaled perfectly, that it's all going to work out? What does it mean to trust that there's this invisible God who's going to take you somewhere that you really want to go? Um, I uh, converted from atheism in my early 20s. I've learned a lot of great things about following Jesus from a lot of great people. I've read libraries of books about it. I've got this master's degree in theology. I've studied all the greats um, who've tried to tell me what it means to follow Jesus. I've attended uncountable pastor's gatherings and conferences and sermons like the one you're hearing here, as I'm sure you have too. And I've been in lots of conversations about how the complexities of stories like mine at the movie... um, work. How do we avoid putting our trust in princes over the long haul? And I think I have a conclusion that there's almost one irresistible false lead for our faith. There's one thing that's the temptation we all face, and it's this. The temptation that will take us down the wrong path is to develop the right opinion about religious issues. If we can just come up with knowing the right answer to, you know, social issues, religious issues, things like that. We're on the side of the angels, that then we're good. Then we've done the thing we're supposed to do with faith. Uh, totally understandable to do that. Uh, just a short time ago, I got an email from, um, a, uh, from a friend about what this challenge looked like for them. And what they said, this man talked about how he'd had a personal awakening when he'd come to this church I was a part of up in Boston. Changed his life. He'd been so depressed, and he found all these tools, and it was so helpful, and it was like it was a first flush of like, God is alive, and God's awesome, and that's great. But he was younger then, and he got married, he started having kids, and stresses of life began to weigh up. And that first flush began to kind of go down a bit, because every single day he found he had to, you know, work on challenging issues at his work, and he had to deal with issues with his kids, which were not easy. The kids were not kind of completely, perfectly going along the way they should go. That became more challenging. Stresses then showed up in his marriage, because he was trying to hold this all together. And he cared about God, and he cared about, you know, whatever you're supposed to get from churches. He, that first flush of religious enthusiasm was still true, but... It just began to get, the pressures on him went down, down, down. So there came a point when he suddenly realized, whatever that thing I got in your church, Dave, was gone. I just didn't feel any of it. And, um, and even, so I left maybe four years ago from that church, and he said, even by the time you left, what I didn't tell you is, whatever you said made no impact on me whatsoever. And I thought, well, thank you for the compliment there. It's really heartening to know that I was able to take you on a long journey. And he said, it's kind of hard to say, but, you know, I just tuned you out because I tuned out everybody. I couldn't, I couldn't take anything in. And so I was explaining that to someone who went to a different sort of church, and they said, well, here's your problem. You're going to the wrong type of church. And uh, go to my church, because my church will get you, you know, that thing you, you lost. And my friend said, what's so great about your church? What's it going to give me? 
And they said, it's going to teach you the right opinions about religious issues because you don't have the right opinions about some religious issues. You know, it's going to teach you how to make an informed vote in this next election in a religious way. And I will say it went a certain direction that would not be my political predilection, but they felt was very justified biblically. And it would uh, show them that in the Bible. And it would tell you what you should think about social issues. You've got all, you, the problem is you've got all wrong opinions. And if you get the right opinion, it's going to cheer you up. And my friend thought about it for a while because he said, yeah, well, I, it's true. I wasn't getting what I used to get from your church, Dave. And Maybe they're right. And so I finally said to them, how are having all the right opinions about religious issues, how's that going to make me feel better about my kids and about my, how's that going to connect me to a living God? And they, they couldn't come up with an answer to that. And he said, uh, and then I, um, I had a reflection. He said, um, Jesus says that come to me if you're heavily burdened and I'll give you rest. And he started to reflect on that. Like, is Jesus, would Jesus do that for me? And he said, I found myself thinking about things that we talked about earlier that at least would connect me to God. Maybe you couldn't even teach me anything anymore, Dave, but at least some of those things about how to go and let God start teaching me things would work. So he started praying psalms, and he started focusing on a living God who would help him moment to moment. And he said, suddenly I had a second conversion. It was like I just felt like a wash in the Holy Spirit. I felt so encouraged. I felt engaged. Suddenly being at the church, which I was no longer in, he says it felt really energizing. And I kind of had a, had a new, had a new uh, energy in what was going on. The big headline to me about following Jesus for the long term is that it requires this thing. It requires a fundamentally innocent and fundamentally renewable faith to access Jesus. Jesus says we need the faith of a child to get what he has to offer. We need the sort of innocence that believes that Jesus will care about us, will speak to us, will guide us, will really take away our burdens if we let him. If we lose the innocence, we don't get that stuff, and then we got nothing, because then we're just stuck with opinions. And yet, it's hard to keep it. Spiritual growth over a lifetime means we're going to develop an increasingly sophisticated set of, of tools to get that innocence. Jesus puts it this way. He sends his apostles out on this great mission. Clearly, it's a specific command to a specific group of people, but theologians ever since have wondered if it's also marching orders for any of us hoping to access his faith in Jesus. So their marching orders start off with this high faith ask that Jesus gives them. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. So part of our innocent faith is that we believe that wherever we go, it's almost like when we put a foot down on this patch of stage, Jesus is there. That we're going out as Jesus' representatives, Jesus' people. And wherever we go, like that territory has been claimed for the kingdom of God because we're there. And that all the power of Jesus and all the encouragement of Jesus goes with us. That's part of the innocent faith. So in a small group in our house a little while back, people prayed and tried to listen uh, from God on behalf of my son, who'd been looking for work for over a year. And so finally, he's a quiet guy. I don't think he'd ever asked for prayer in that group, but he got prayer that they pray he'd get a job. The next day, he got a job. And that, looking for a year. And so we were going to come back and say the next week, hey, you guys all prayed for him. You've actually never prayed for him before because he doesn't really speak. And, um, but you did that time. The next day, he got a job. Um, a woman came to our group who'd had a major... Uh, problem with her kind of right side of her body, like her hip and her leg, and so she was hobbling. She's a little bit older, and, um, and she came one time, and somebody in our group was praying, like, I wonder if God wants to say anything to anybody here that he would like to do something, and they said, I think, I wonder if there's somebody here in a small group, maybe 30 people we don't really have in church, 
And because um, we haven't started a church there, but they said, I wonder if there's somebody here who has pain down their right side, including their hip, that's been really bothering them. This woman had come for the first time, and she said, I do. And so we prayed for her, and it went away. So it had been there for over a year. She had a plane ride. She hadn't been able to finish the plane ride. She was trying to get up, and it was gone. She came back several weeks later. She had still not with us. She only came for that one time, basically. But she told us over uh, subsequent times, yeah, it's never come back. So there's that sense where as we go, it's this very innocent thing. you got the power. Trust that you, know, you can bring real things from God. It's just awesome. At the same time, he tells us that we're going to get opposition and pain that's going to make this sort of childlike faith very hard to maintain. And he has advice for that too. He says in the same passage, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Evidently, we don't just need innocence. We need a kind of high-level shrewdness to keep it or we're going to lose it, like my friend in my old church did. Some years back, I heard a totally provocative take on how followers of Jesus pull off this difficult challenge over a lifetime and what are the most tempting false leads that would keep us from getting the goods over our whole life. It came from this kind of highfalutin place. It came when I was studying theology. Someone told me this thing, which I then forgot about for 25 years. 25 years later, I thought, remember back to that one thing in this one class, very obscure thing? It suddenly seems really relevant because I was 25 years older. And um, it came from a French philosopher, so again, highfalutin, named Paul Ricoeur. And he talked about this thing that he called, again, a highfalutin name, the second naivete, the second innocence, the second sense where you feel like, I feel like a young person again, but there's a second thing. Um, I thought of that. Brad also said that you guys have been in this series based on this book called Falling Upward by this wonderful writer that many of you have read named Richard Rohr, which deals with issues about how does spirituality, how does faith change from the first half of your life to the second half of your life. I thought, well, there you go. Let's talk about the second naivete. That's like, and, and Rohr is very familiar with the second naivete, the thing I'm going to tell you about. I think it's one window into that that's really helped me. Here's the basic idea. Ricoeur says, imagine like your first experience where everything in your life seems hopeful. So he says, for some of you, that'll be like a religious conversion. It was for me. So again, I was an atheist, and I had a religious conversion to Jesus. And then suddenly I was in a group that was very, it was on the move, it was growing, and I was praying, and I felt like God was speaking to me, and God was guiding me to go do certain things, and I was really hopeful. And I remember conversations, like I'd seen a movie with some of these friends from this, this Christian group, and we were just thinking, this is so big, we're going to be friends for life, literally. So we're going to be friends for life, and Jesus is taking us places that are unexpected, and it felt so encouraging. So Ricoeur would say, yeah, like that. For some people, that first flush, which he calls the first naivete, when you think everything's going to work out, maybe it isn't a spiritual thing. Maybe it's like, I have a friend who, um, his golden era is when he was like eight. And he, was, he had a perfect family, and he would, it was in the country, and he'd go outside, and he'd play, and he felt so protected. And uh, then when I knew him in his 20s at that point, he said, that's all gone. I don't feel protected. I feel kind of scared. I wish that was the best years of my life. You know, that was the time when I felt protected. Record talks about that, too. He says, in that first naivete, one thing you'll probably notice is you felt protected. All the pressure of your life wasn't on you. So with my one friend, he would say, right, he was eight. You know, his parents covered everything. He didn't have to worry about, I wonder what's going to happen at work for dad today. Maybe he'll get fired. Maybe he'll lose his job. You know, he didn't worry about that stuff. And he would say to me, say, well, Dave, you're right. You were like in college. You still weren't paying your own bills. You know, you still were protected by either your parents' money or the university's loans or whatever. But you felt protected. You were, it was not, your pressure to your life wasn't, wasn't on you. In the first naivete, he says, here's the thing you're going to mistake. You're going to think this is what it's all about. 
I love how I feel. I never used to feel this way before. But I didn't realize life was so awesome. All those other idiots out there haven't found this wonderful thing I've got. They're just, you know, fooey on them. I'm going to tell the world about this awesomeness. He says, but here's what's going to happen. You can't keep it. He said, imagine, if the, imagine the first naivete is being like being in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve. It's in, you're, you're in a beautiful place, but you get expelled from the garden. And you think, why did that happen? Now, Ricoeur would say, maybe it's because you blew it and you, you sinned, and because of that, you can't be in that thing anymore. He says, but maybe it had to happen. Maybe the first naivete is like a womb, and you effectively get born, you know? And now you're suddenly outside of this very protected thing where everything was taken care of and it felt so good, and you're in a cold, harsh world. He says, at that point, you have three choices. Two are bad, one's good, but one is unexpected. Choice number one, you, go, you try to get back in. You think, how did I end up in this cold, horrible place? I liked it back there when everything felt great. I want to revisit, I want to go back. He says, what you're going to discover is that there's an angel with a flaming sword guarding the entrance, which the Bible says there is. They will, they're not letting you back in. Or if it's a womb, right, you can't go back in. It's, a, it's impossible, you can't enter. And you think, well, fooey, I liked it there. So what, do you, what can you do? One thing you can do is you can camp out and stare at that door for a while. And he says, you can enter this thing he calls critical distance. And you can say, that was stupid. All those people who thought that was good were wrong. So for me, with my kind of uh, Christian conversion, I could sit aside and go, what was that all about? That was like I was in this fantasy world. All those idiot Christians who told me it was all so great. Yeah, it felt good at the time, but this is the real world. I mean, this is the real world. And that not, has nothing to do with what's really going on. And so you become skeptics. You judge the first naivete. He says the other option is you can try to get back in. You can't get back in, but you can camp out right at the gate. And you can remember what it felt like to feel so good, and you can defend the thing without experiencing the thing. He says that's the temptation of religious conservatives. You lose the, the first flush of how awesome your faith in Jesus was. You, can't, you don't feel it anymore, but you defend the trappings of it. Well, here's what those people taught. Here, and I know that's got to be true because I felt so good at that time. So I'm going to defend that true thing that they taught, even though I don't longer experience it myself. And you become combative. You become somebody who fights other believers for the thing which you no longer experience, but you're camping out at the gate. He says the only other choice is to do a very unexpected thing. It's to turn your back to like if here's the, the Garden of Eden, to turn away from the Garden of Eden and walk straight into the whole sinful world with Jesus, like the apostles did on the journey he sent them out on. Jesus is with you, but you're no longer in the Garden of Eden. Now you're walking through the whole sinful world. And he says, here's what will happen if you do. If you do that your whole life, you're going to be in the world of sin and pain. People are not always going to be nice to you. Some people are going to be mean to you. People are not all going to be good people. Some people are going to be bad people. All the pressures of your life that you want to avoid, you want to feel protected like mom and dad or a big God are going to take care of all those problems. You're going to feel a lot of those pressures on your own shoulders, but you're going to do it with Jesus. And you're going to discover he's going to suddenly remake your life as you do it. And then something funny is going to happen. You're going to walk through the whole sinful world. You're going to say, hey, what's that up ahead? Looks kind of familiar. What is that thing? And you're going to keep walking it closer and closer. And you're going to realize you've gone around the whole world. And now you're entering the Garden of Eden from the rear. And there's no angel with a flaming sword there. And so now you can walk right in, and you're back in the Garden of Eden. But you're a different person. You are not the person who was in the first naivete. You have been seasoned. You're a different human being, but you're back. You have a second naivete, something you can bring to the table. Well, here's why 
I've become so enthusiastic about that. And here's what you can guess why I forgot about that for 25 years. I got taught that in seminary and I thought, whatever, I was 25 years old. I thought, I'm the first naivete. I kind of want to hold on to it. I'm pretty excited about this. It's really good. So all those poor people have to walk through the whole sinful world. That sounds horrible. And uh, so I just said, I'm not even going to think about that. And 25 years later, I thought, remember that thing? Wow. That really seems true because I suddenly felt all the pressures of my own life on my own shoulders and I felt like I was trying to walk with Jesus. I didn't know what it meant. And suddenly it kind of helped center me again and I thought, wow, maybe that's what my life is like and maybe that's a really good thing. So here is, uh, that's I think why when Brad said, what are you enthusiastic about? I thought, I'm enthusiastic about the second naivete. It's so helpful. Let me talk about a few ways that we might access the second naivete, the few ways we might do what Jesus says, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The first, and these are not, this is not comprehensive. This is just like almost random. It's like, well, this applies or that applies, but it doesn't, there's almost no way to define the second naivete, right? Because you're walking through the whole sinful world with Jesus. You're learning as you go. But here's a few kind of semi-random things that I have picked up that have been helpful, which might give you a flavor of it. First, delight in Jesus even when you're burdened. This is like such a new thing to me. So in my spiritual formation, one thing really helpful to me, which I've taught some people in this room, is how helpful it is to praise God in all circumstances. Like it's a key teaching of the Bible, a quarter of the Psalms begin by commanding our own souls to praise God. Praise God, oh my soul, even though things are horrible, do it. So I did that. I was very diligent about doing that. But what I found as life went on, and I felt even more stresses, is it didn't always work. I mean, it may have worked spiritually. It's possible that in the heavenlies it worked. But for, my, for me, it didn't cheer me up sometimes. And I would think, I just feel so stressed. And I'm trying to praise God in it, and it didn't quite help. And one day, I was out praying about it. I thought, I'm, just, I'm anxious. I can't get rid of this anxiety. And I'm trying to interact with Jesus in this. And here's what I feel like Jesus says for what it's worth. I feel like Jesus says is, that's okay. And I said, yeah, I know it's okay, but I don't want to feel anxious. I feel like God said, yeah, it's tough. I agree. Feeling anxious is the worst. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, yes, it is. And I'm sure it's sinful. I'm sure even my anxiety means I'm not trusting in you, and I, don't, I want to trust in you. I don't want to feel this way. So I said, well, Dave, I don't want to say this too harshly, but welcome to the human condition. You know, if you were to survey the whole world right now, how many people are feeling anxious right at this moment? You know, some, some significant percentage. I don't know what it is, but it's not, not, it's not just you. There are others out there who also, because there's stresses on your life, so here's, I guess, what I have to say to you. Would it be okay if with me, like, what do you have to do today? Like, what are your tasks that you have to do? You have to do this work thing, you have to do whatever else. What do you have to do? And I, I named them. They said, how about you do those things as cheerfully as you can, knowing that I, I promise I'm going to be with you, I'll talk to you, I'll be with you, and not worry about whether you're anxious. Just live your day with me, anxious or not anxious. And I said, well, that's kind of a come down. I was hoping the not anxious option was going to be the one that was going to come up positive, but evidently that's not it. And uh, I said, okay, I guess I could do that. I said, is that too much of a burden for you, or can you just live your day with me and don't worry about the anxiety? And uh, I did. And what I found afterwards is I kind of forgot about the anxiety, right? Because I'd sort of given it to Jesus. And I sort of, it's like later I kind of thought, I've really thought about being anxious the whole day. I've just done my day, and I reference Jesus when I can. I kind of forgot that I even was anxious. And... Um, I felt like God said, yeah. I checked in at the end of the day. I felt like he said, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you just have to delight in me even if the problem is still there. And just trust that as you live your life, that's, you know, problems are part of life. But problems are part of life. You can live with me, not apart from me. And I felt like he said the problem you had before when you had to battle the problem head on. I'm anxious. I'm going to win. I'm going to, with Jesus, I'm going to overcome that. 
is it almost gives the, the power too much to the anxiety. It's like, that's the thing. That's the monster you've got to slay today. I feel like God said, there's tremendous power in ignoring it, you know, and ignoring it with me. So here's something I've learned. Delight in Jesus even when you're burdened. Second, take the social action you're called to in this era, but notice burden and outrage. This is also counterintuitive to me. So as someone trying to be godly, I would be outraged at people that, to my mind, are doing terrible things to other people, or maybe to me in some cases. Jesus himself, though, embracing the second naivete, took a surprising tack when he saw, you know, injustice towards him at least. Because of the miraculous signs we get in John 2, Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. That seems like a scripture that I'd never, I'd kind of tried to ignore. Because what it seems to be saying is, Jesus, when people were doing evil to him, said, you know, I know what's in your heart. It's pretty dark in there. I, I think that Jesus seems like kind of a cynic there. I don't like Jesus the cynic. It's like, you people, <laughs> not going to trust you. I think it doesn't feel like the Jesus that I can connect to very well. Here's what, over the years, I found powerful in that. Jesus was in the second naivete, right? He did, whatever the first naivete was, he was long past that. What was fully with God and was fully experiencing the Holy Spirit and was walking out his own journey, but part of that journey was not that people were going to be nice to him, right? That he knew, I know it's in your hearts. So it wouldn't surprise him. Every single person I work with in this network of churches, myself included, is in a season right now of protest, understandably. So I was saying last night to some people here, I don't think I'm ever on a call ever where someone doesn't talk about how the big conversation they're in is about marginalization and is about privilege and is about uh, standing up for the marginalized and is about action needing to be taken. Every conversation I'm in is about that. And I think, amen. And here's the thing I found as that conversations come, come along is that people who kind of follow that Jesus plan of not being outraged at the evil in people's hearts by saying, yeah, there's evil in people's hearts. They take the action. So they still do the protest. They still learn the stuff. They still process. The, they do all that stuff. But the big difference is it does not crush them, right? They do it because they do it. It's the right thing to do. It's what they're called to do. They do it with Jesus. It's part of walking into the whole sinful world. Now's the time when we protest. That's fine. But the people in the first naivete on occasion feel like, how is this happening? This is awful. How does this possibly go on? And it becomes almost overwhelming. It's too much to actually take the action they're called to take. So what I'll say is, seems to me part of the second naivete is that John 2, take all the action you're called to, but notice your own burden and outrage as something to take to Jesus. Third, regularly praise God that he's making something great and worthy out of your life. The journey over a lifetime is so often going to feel confusing. By definition, this long walk we're on is not exclusively going to be characterized by the first naivete, when everything felt so protected and awesome and life couldn't have been better. This is not going to happen. That is, we're promised it in Scripture. But this is the heart, again, of why, you know, a quarter of the Psalms command our own spirits to praise God right now. Because in this moment of your life, right now, with all the uncertainties and stresses and things that just aren't working out in your life, along with the great things in your life, God's working. God is making something great out of your life as it is right now. And I think we can feel like, right, when we're in that journey through the whole sinful world with Jesus at our side, we don't feel as protected as we once did, and it's hard often. We're often surprised by what we're learning on that hard journey. It feels like it's just a slog. You know, whatever's supposed to be happening in my life doesn't seem to be happening. I don't know what's going to get it there. I have no idea. 
And, uh, and I'm probably messing up, you know. I probably made this choice I shouldn't have made, and I, you know, I, or I should be more motivated than I am, or this problem wouldn't even exist. You know, other people don't seem to have this problem, so they're better people than me because I do have this problem. We feel like whatever we're doing, it's probably, we just aren't, you know, if only somebody else were living our life, it would be a good one, but sadly it's us. Um, I think the power of the second naivete is you're suddenly in a moment with Jesus where if you go to him, what he's going to tell you is, I am with you on your life. This is your life, and it's totally with me. And I'm sure you've made all sorts of mistakes, and I'm sure other people have done all sorts of rotten things to you. But just to know, at least in terms of you and me, you are where you need to be. And you find yourself praising God that something good and worthy is happening right now for you. Fourth, increase the value you put on godly friends who make you feel more faith-filled and hopeful rather than burdened. So in the first naivete, whenever you felt so safe and protected, life was going to be great. Those people were everywhere, or you wouldn't have felt so good, right? And so if it's my friend who, when he was eight, and his family was so great, and he'd play outside in this rural area, and it was also awesome, at that point, he didn't have to look for godly friends who made him feel more faith-filled. Everybody was that way. His friends down the street were that way. His parents were that way. His siblings were that way. In his case, sometimes siblings aren't that way, but for him, they were. Every, they were everywhere. But when I talked to him in his 20s and beyond, they were nowhere, he felt like, I got none of that. Everything makes me feel, that nobody makes me feel better. For me, you know, I'm in this Christian community, and it's just so good, and we're all so excited about where God's going to take us, and we feel so, it's all great. But then, graduation happens, and everyone moves. Everyone scatters and starts living their life post-graduation. And then I suddenly felt very unprotected, and like, where are my friends, and who am I going to be doing this journey with? And it feels kind of lonely out here. And what I've discovered over the years, and I think what we see in the second night of taste stories in the scriptures, is if we take a moment with Jesus, he's going to point out that you have those friends, but they may not be obvious. And so maybe some of those friends don't live here. You know, maybe some of those friends live somewhere else, but they're real. They are your friends. They just aren't here. And what you'll say is, okay, how do I value someone I don't see regularly? Neither of us is very good on the phone, and email doesn't really make me feel all that great. I mean, I, I want to be a nice person and ask how their family's doing and things like that, but it doesn't, whatever email exchanges don't give me what they gave me when they lived next to me. Here's what I think Jesus is going to say is, you've got those friends. They are not going to fill the same role as that first naivete role. It's not going to be by acclamation, everything sweeping up in something awesome, but they're there. And there's more than you think. And if you start looking around you in your local world, they're surprising people. So at various points, I will say to God, where are my friends? I moved all the way across the country with no friends, with a family, nobody. And it's like you're, start, you're rebuilding. I left a place with tons of rich friendships. And I feel like I'm rebuilding. Where are those people? And here's what I feel like God says. Him, that couple, those people who still live across the country, you know, that child of yours is a friend in a certain way, of course your wife, you know, and suddenly I realize, okay, and then I'll ask God, how do I value them more than I do? And I feel like he'll give me ideas, say, well, I don't know, make that contact, pray, just pray for them right now and praise me, it doesn't even matter being in contact with them, get together with that person, take initiative because that person's nearby, and suddenly I realize, you know, there's more than I think, and suddenly I have a, a kind of a team to go through with, but it's a, you have to kind of ask God for it and value every single one he gives you in that second naivete journey, in my experience. And finally, connect with and respond to God today as a top priority. As you've probably picked up, so much of my journey is about, God, how do I deal with this? I go see my ultraviolet movie, and I feel despair about some big, important project in my life. And what I need to do is just go to God. 
The reason I was praying Psalms is I was trying to go to God and it wasn't working. Doesn't that happen sometimes? I said, okay, I'll go to God. God, I feel so despairing. Is this because it's legit and I just hadn't gotten in touch with how hopeless this thing is? And I feel like, I don't know. I'm just, my mind's too, I can't be still enough to be with God. And so I felt like there was this little nudge saying, well, you can pray Psalms. Those are prayers already in the Bible. Just pray them. And I, so I choose that, and by three or four of them, I'm, I'm just hearing God. I'm just taking it in. So connecting with God today in the second naivete journey, that's how Jesus goes with you on the journey. If you're on your own, going through the whole sinful world, you're not going to like it. It's just too, it's overwhelming. You're going to be crushed, right? You've got to stay where it's safe. You've got to look for anything that makes you feel better. But if you're with Jesus, with Jesus, connecting on that journey, you can totally do it. And you're totally going to find there is an end to it. And the end is Eden from the, uh, the other side. Let me pray for us. Well, God, I pray for everybody here in Jesus' name. And I pray for an encouragement right now because, you know, we're all human beings who are living a life. And as we live our life, I pray for a wave of Holy Spirit encouragement in Jesus' name right now. And for those of us who feel like, gee, on that last point, just connecting with you, Jesus, in the journey, we feel like, yeah, I'm not so great at that. In Jesus' name right now, I pray for stillness of heart, and I pray that you will open up a possibility that we haven't seen. Holy Spirit, would you just come and kind of speak something, speak encouragement to us right now? What would you want to say to us right now in our lives that would give us a sense that it's you and you're alive? So if you have a question for God, ask it in your heart. And see if, see if, just be still and see if you sense God speaking to you. Well, God, whatever you said to anybody here, I affirm that and bless it. For those of us who feel like, oh, not there yet, nothing really, nothing from God directly. Well, I pray for those people, Lord, and I ask right now that you bring encouragement at the very least. Holy Spirit, would you just fall like a blanket over us with hope right now in Jesus' name? And right now, if you feel anything, if you feel encouragement or if you feel like God's spoken, why don't you thank God? Say, hey, thanks a lot. Well, we are grateful. And Lord, part of me, when I first revisited the second naivete, I felt like, oh, it feels like work. I kind of liked the first naivete, which didn't feel like work. I don't like work. But what I found over the years, Lord, is that it's not work. It's just living life with you, and it's good. And in Jesus' name, right now, I bless everyone here who's on that journey, who embraces it, to experience it. Lord, help us embrace the life we have with you. Help us see how you are speaking to us and guiding us into something that while we didn't expect it is really good. In Jesus' name, amen.